On the Lord's Day, and as we continue in our worship, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John as we continue our exposition through John's Gospel, and we pick up in chapter 2, verse 12. John chapter 2, verse 12, through the remainder of the chapter. And it's a blessing to have old friends with us and our visitors, and we do extend to you a very warm welcome and pray that you would be edified and built up in your faith uh, through the worship and in particular through the preaching of God's Word. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, and we will read through the end of the chapter. This is the Word of God. Let us hear it with intent hearts and attentive minds. John 2, beginning in verse 12. After this, He, that is Jesus, went down to Capernaum, He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the Scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let us unite our hearts one final time and ask God's blessing as we come to the preaching of His Word. Let us pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we bless You and thank You for the blessing of corporate worship with Your people. And we do pray, Father, as we've just sung, that You would teach us, Lord. We pray that You would give us true humility as we bow before the Scriptures the words of eternal life, the Scriptures which cannot be broken. Father, we pray that we would have reverence for Your Word and a love for Your Word. Lord, that we would regard Your Word as our very life. Lord, we pray that we would imitate our Lord Jesus who lived not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Father, we pray that You would reveal to us glorious things in this text as once again we see the glories of Your Son incarnate, the Word become flesh, we behold His glory, 
the glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father. Father, we pray that we would glory in Christ who is our life. Lord, that we would stand with sobriety at the zeal which He had for Your worship. That we would stand with great awe and thankfulness that He Himself is our temple. That it is through His being crucified and in three days rising from the dead that we have been given the gift of eternal life and peace with God. That it is through Christ that we come to You, our Father. By the power of Your Spirit, we pray that Your Spirit would descend and be our teacher. That Your Spirit who inspired these words would illumine our hearts and minds to not just understand intellectually, but to glory in and to rejoice in the truth of Your Word. Father, draw near to us, we pray. We pray that Your people would be blessed, that we would be built up in our faith. And we pray, Lord, for any who are here who are strangers to Your grace, that You would minister to them. That You would give spiritual life where there is presently death. We pray, Father, for any who are here outside of Christ, bring them by the power of Your sovereign Spirit into the safety of union with Christ. That they may find peace with God being shielded from Your wrath through the cross and resurrection of Your Son. Father, do this all for the glory of Your name, we pray. We ask that You would be our help. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, let us um, look at our text under three headings this morning as we've been working our way through the Gospel of John. First of all, considering the exposition of the text. That is, what does the text itself teach us? How does it instruct us? Secondly, we will move into doctrines that are deduced from the text itself. And then lastly and thirdly, turn and close with our application. Okay, So let us begin with our exposition. And it's at this point in particular that I encourage you please to have your Bible open so that you can see precisely what God intends for His church to understand here. So picking up in John chapter 2, our exposition, verse 12 begins with the words, after this, that is, after the wedding at Cana that we looked at last week, Jesus went down to Capernaum. Okay, now, Capernaum is a village located about 20 miles away from Cana. It's situated on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Capernaum becomes important because it becomes kind of the headquarters of our Lord in the region of Galilee. And so he goes down to Capernaum and it says, He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And presumably, all of these go with... Wow. How's that? I'm a little afraid to speak now. Should we switch packs? Don't switch. Okay. Apologize for that. If anyone was falling asleep, you're awake now. Um, he is his mother, his brothers. Is that a bit loud, guys? Yeah, a little bit. There we go. Was I not mic'd at all thus far? Is that the problem? Okay, gotcha. So Jesus, with his mother, with his brothers, and his disciples, go down to Capernaum, probably because all of these would have been present at the wedding at Cana. And from John 7, we know that his brothers at this point are still not believing in him. 
But nonetheless, John doesn't give us much information. He simply tells us they did not stay there many days. So it's something of a transition text. And then verse 13 really introduces us to the main focus of this uh, this passage. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, Christ, being born under the law, as a Jew, observed the Passover in Jerusalem every year, as was commanded of Him in the law of Moses. And John, the Gospel writer, records for us three Passovers in our Lord's ministry. The first is here, the second is in John 6, and the final Passover is spoken often, spoken of often towards the latter half of this Gospel. Now, there is possibly a fourth Passover if the feast that's mentioned in John chapter 5 was another Passover. But these function for us kind of as time markers for the Lord's ministry. And it's how, that, how we know that His ministry was between two and three years, somewhere around that time frame. And one of the biggest questions that is posed regarding this text is, is this really Jesus' first Passover of His public ministry? Now, why would that question be asked? That question is asked because the synoptics... Matthew, Mark, and Luke also record a cleansing of the temple, but all of them place it at His final Passover during His final week. And so some commentators have suggested that what, God, uh, what, what uh, John is doing is he's not giving us a chronological account, they say, but rather he's placing the cleansing of the temple, which actually happened at the end of his ministry, right at the front of his ministry, for a theological reason. In fact, one commentator said, John is interested in giving us truth, not facts. I hope you see there's a problem with that type of language. Um, I don't buy that, and I don't think that you should buy that theory either. And here's my main reason. Everything up to this point in John's Gospel has been uh, tediously chronological. You think back to chapter 1, three times John uses the phrase, the next day, and again, the next day, and again, the next day. If you look at chapter 2, verse 1, it begins with the words, on the third day. So I don't think there's any good reason to think that John all all of a sudden is breaking chronological sequence. Rather, what we should conclude is that this is a different cleansing than the one that is recorded by the synoptics. And if you remember at the beginning of the Gospel, when I introduced the Gospel, I mentioned how John's Gospel purposely fills in the gaps of the other things that the synoptics left out of their accounts. And so this is the first of two cleansings of the temple, uh, temple, and I'll explain the significance of that when we get to our doctrine section. Now, verse 14 brings us to the main event. Verse 14 says... And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. Okay, let's let's get clear in our mind what the issue is and what the issue is not here. The issue here is not merely that there are people selling animals and exchanging money. Okay? For instance, if you lived very far from... Let's say you lived in Galilee. Galilee is a 90-mile journey just to get to Jerusalem. 
And if you live in Galilee, it's next to impossible to bring your sacrifice with you for the Passover. And so God made actual provision in Deuteronomy for you to instead bring your money to Jerusalem and buy the sacrifice there when you arrived. Also, there are money changers here because if a Jew coming to Jerusalem wanted to pay the temple tax, it had to be paid in a specific coinage, which is called the Tyrian uh, Tyrian shekel, uh, probably because of its superior metal content. And so what they would have to do is they would, you know, coming from all over Israel, they would first have to convert whatever currency they brought with them into this currency in order to make the offering. And so there's nothing inherently wrong with either of those two things. Okay? Now, what drew out Christ's righteous anger is two things. First of all, and this is the element that the synoptic gospels bring out, first of all, the market sellers, if you want to call them that, and the money changers, were taking advantage of the people's situation for their own personal monetary gain. Okay, so if you read the synoptics, Jesus says to them, do not make my father's house a den of robbers or a den of thieves. They're, they're not only doing business in the temple, that's bad enough, they're conducting unjust business in the temple. They are using God's worship as an occasion to rip off their fellow countrymen. And there's nothing new under the sun, is there? Now secondly, this is the second offense or affront that drew out the Lord's righteous anger. This is what John brings out. Is even if they had been dealing fairly, they're doing it in the temple. Okay? God's holy place is filled with commerce. If they had set up this market at some convenient place located outside the temple, that would have been fine. But they are here set up in the court of Gentiles. Okay? If you know anything about the arrangement of the Old Covenant temple, the, the Gentiles were not allowed to go anywhere in the temple except for the court of the Gentiles. And in fact, we have uh, uncovered inscriptions that would have hung at certain places on the temple that said to the Gentiles, if you do dare transgress to another area, you'll have no one to blame but yourself for your fast ensuing death. So this is something the Jews took very seriously. And so you think about it, the only place the Gentiles can worship and pray has been turned into a noisy market of distraction. These uh, money changers and those selling animals are hindering the worship of God for their own gain. Now verse 15. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Like the faithful kings of old, if you think of old Testament, some of the Old Testament kings, the minority of them, kings like Hezekiah, kings like Josiah, who, who cleansed the temple of their idols that had been set up in the place of other gods. Jesus here, God's final king, is cleansing God's house of its corruption. And there's no doubt that Jesus prior to this, on his prior trips to Jerusalem for Passover, had already seen and been outraged by 
this uh, profanity going on inside the temple, but now that he has officially entered public office, he demonstrates his authority. And indeed, he's actually fulfilling prophecy. Malachi 3, verses 1 through 3. We're very familiar with the first verse. Malachi prophesied and he said, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Who's that a reference to? John the Baptist, right? But then the very next words, Malachi goes on, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple. But who can endure the day of His coming and who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will purify the sons of Levi. Right? The, the Levites were the priests. And so, just like Malachi said, not just of John the Baptist, but what of Christ would do, what Christ would do, coming on the scene, Jesus, our prophet, priest, and king, is coming to the temple and he is cleansing his father's house of its impurities. And Jesus then explains to them the reason for his zeal at the end of verse 16. He says to them, Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Notice the special, unique relationship He has to God. He doesn't say to them, do not make God's house a house of merchandise. He says this is His Father's house. God is His Father in a unique way. And by the way, that's a claim that Jesus will make again in chapter 5. And the Jews will seek to kill Him for it because they understood Him when He said that to be making Himself equal with God. They just think that he's some Johnny-come-lately nobody, when in reality, the one who has entered the temple is the unique son of the Father, and as such, is jealous for the Father's honor, and as the Son, he has unique authority to bring reformation to the Father's house. The high priests, according to the tribe of Levi, had profaned the temple, much like Eli's worthless sons in 1 Samuel, But now the true high priest displays true godly zeal over the house of God and the worship of God. And as the disciples witness this, no doubt, somewhat shocking turn of events, the words of Psalm 69, verse 9 come into their minds. Verse 17, Then His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up or consumed me depending on your translation. Now, though we'll see in a moment that the disciples didn't completely, fully understand the significance of what they were witnessing here, they are already somewhat piecing together the Scriptures. They're realizing that David's zeal in Psalm 69, verse 9, for God's house, was prophetic of David's greater son's zeal for his father's house. In other words, David, like the temple as we'll see, is a type that finds its fulfillment in the person of Christ. And you think about the disciples' expectations of Christ at this point compared to what they saw Him doing. The disciples probably at this point expected the Messiah to have this kind of zeal not towards the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders, but rather against the Romans right, and the pagans. We've talked about that before, that that was by and large the the wrong expectation of Messiah and His mission. 
But instead, what they see is Christ taking on Israel's own leadership who had perverted true religion, and they are beginning to connect the dots of what Jesus' ministry is going to be. It's not a mission to join forces with the Sanhedrin against the Romans. It is a mission to bring judgment to the house of Israel who have set themselves in opposition to God and to make known to them the only way to be reconciled to God and to know God, that is, through God's Son. By bowing to the One who resides over the Father's house. And just like in Psalm 69, if you read Psalm 69, you will find how David finds himself surrounded by opposition because of his zeal for God's house. And following in David's footsteps, so also here, the authorities are immediate in their opposition to Jesus. Verse 18. So the Jews answered him and said, and you can kind of hear almost their tone of voice here, what sign do you show us since you do these things? Now, if you remember a few weeks back, this is that same theme of ecclesiastical pride and abuse we opened up several weeks ago in chapter 1. You remember when they come to John the Baptist and what, is, what are the first words out of their mouth? Why are you baptizing? If you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, what authority do you have to be baptizing? Here we see it again now with Jesus. These are not men who are sincerely interested in truth. These are men who love their position of authority and therefore they detest anyone who would challenge that authority. And by the way, there's a lesson there that for those who call for unwelcome reform in the church, they will find themselves often opposed. And so here, they demand proof. They demand a sign. As though though their own consciences didn't already know that what they were doing was wrong, and as though they will believe Jesus and submit to Him if He shows them a sign. Now, we know that that's not true. Because in chapter 11, the chief priests and the leaders have gathered together and they say to one another, what are we to do? For this man does many signs. So at that point, they've seen his signs. And yet, what do they do? Verse 48 of chapter 11, they say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation." And so John says they plot instead to kill him. Jesus knows what is in their hearts. And Jesus does not bow to their disingenuous demands. He could have shown them a miracle if it had so pleased him. But instead, he tells them of a sign which will be given to them. And he purposefully tells them in parabolic language. Notice verse 19. Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. This is an example of God hardening sinners. Jesus speaks to them on purpose in a parable. And what he says is not untrue, but it would require a sincere heart to inquire of its meaning. And if they were to inquire, he would have explained. He's speaking of His own death and resurrection. That will be the sign of His authority that they will get. 
Just like elsewhere in the Gospel, He says to certain peoples, the only sign that you are going to get is the sign of Jonah, who is in the belly of the beast for three days. Literally, it's an imperative. The tense of the verb. It's a command. You destroy this temple. Now, He's talking about His body, but they think He's talking about the physical building. And you can imagine them thinking in their pious, self-righteous, hypocritical mindset, you can imagine them thinking to themselves, we would never do that. We would never profane God's holy temple. But here's the point. If they have no problem desecrating the old temple as they already have and are, then why would they be hesitant to crucify the Lord of glory in order to save their own skin? And Jesus says to them, but I will raise it up again in three days. And they will see His authority because when He has been raised up, his bo- when His body, which is the true temple, has been raised up, He will bring destruction on this earthly temple. Verse 20, Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Notice they don't inquire of His meaning. They simply reject Him and mock Him. They don't realize that they're speaking to the One, the Word who in the beginning was with God and was God, who spoke the entirety of heaven and earth into existence in six days. And so, even if Jesus had been referring to the physical temple, it would have hardly been something difficult for Him to do. But He's talking about a greater sign. And notice He doesn't correct their, understand, their misunderstanding. He has given the light for all who desire to walk in the light, but for those who choose to walk in darkness, He allows the darkness to remain. Verse 21, but He was speaking of the temple of His body. Okay, I'm going to spend a whole doctrinal point opening that up, so just put a pin in that and uh, hold it there for a second. Verse 22, therefore, when He had risen from the dead, His disciples remembered that He had said this to them, and they believed the Scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So at the time that this was spoken, the disciples also were somewhat uh, confused. Um, His enigmatic language even went over their head a bit. But John makes the comment, after He had risen from the dead, what happened after Jesus rose from the dead? He sent His Spirit to His church and they received the Spirit who Jesus said would bring them to their remembrance all things And they then remembered this saying and they understood what it truly meant. That the temple that was to be destroyed and raised was none other than the body of the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of the church, both Jew and Gentile. And at that point, they believed the Scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. And then lastly, we have this very interesting section Verse 23 says, Now when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in His name, yeah, in His name, when they saw the signs which He did. So He did apparently go on to perform signs at this Passover, just not for these religious leaders. And then verse 24, But Jesus did not commit Himself to them because He knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in man. Now, there's a play on words in Greek here. Literally, many believed in him 
But he did not believe in them because he knew all men. In other words, their belief was not the kind of genuine faith that caused Jesus to entrust himself savingly to them. There was a disingenuousness about them. And Christ knew it because he knows all men and he knows what is in man. And they seem to be those who were wowed by his signs, like we'll see in John chapter 6. You remember when the crowds are following him and they want to find him. And he says, it's not because you believe in me. It's because they liked how the, the bread and the fish that was multiplied filled their bellies. And it seems to be the same kind of people here. That they liked His signs, but they didn't commit themselves to Him in saving faith as Lord and as Christ. And this sets the stage for the individual that we will meet next time. Nicodemus, who has seen the signs that Jesus is doing, but has not yet been born again. And so this, these last couple few verses kind of tee up the ball, if you will, to lead us into this discussion with Nicodemus. But I'm going to leave our exposition there and we'll pick up on that, Lord willing, next time. Let us move into our our second uh, uh, part of this morning's sermon. Doctrine deduced from our text. What doctrines are we instructed in from this text? And I want to give you and open up three things this morning. And I'll I'll give them to you as we go. Number one is kind of a big picture point in terms of understanding the significance of Jesus cleansing the temple and how that is the fulfillment of Old Testament themes. Okay? So number one is this. Jesus cleansing the temple is His fulfilling His role as God's faithful priest. Okay? Jesus cleansing the temple is His fulfilling His role as God's faithful priest. And this is something that's missed in understanding Jesus cleansing the temple, particularly the fact that Jesus cleanses the temple twice, once at the very beginning of his ministry and once at the very end. And so let me try to explain and try to bring clarity to this. In Leviticus 14, and we're not going to go there this morning, but I encourage you to read Leviticus 14 this afternoon. In Leviticus 14, God gives lengthy instruction of what is to be done if a house in Israel is suspected to be leprous. Okay, Now, leprosy is, in my opinion, not a very helpful translation. Okay, The word literally means corruption or affliction or plague. And it's not the same thing at all as what we today know as leprosy. Um, And we know that. I mean, that's obvious by the fact that if you read Leviticus 14, this corruption is not just something that affects humans, but it can plague whole structures like stones and plaster. And if someone in Leviticus 14, if someone suspects that their house is infected, they are to call to the priest to come and inspect the house. And if the priest finds corruption, he shuts up the house for seven days to see if it spreads. And on the seventh day, he returns. And if it has spread, he removes all the stones that have been infected. And they scrape all the infected plaster and they dump all of that in an unclean place outside the city. And they then replace all of those bad stones with good ones. And they replaster with good plaster. 
This is their first effort to cleanse the house. That is what is happening here in John 2. Jesus, the priest, is cleansing the temple of its corruption. But Leviticus 14, verses 43-45 goes on and says this, If the disease breaks out again, after he has taken out the stones and scraped the house and plastered it, then the priest shall go back and look. And if the disease has spread in the house, it is a persistent leprous disease in the house. It is unclean. And then verse 45 says this, And he shall break down the house its stones and timber and all the plaster of the house, and he shall carry them outside of the city to an unclean place. Does that sound familiar? In other words, if after two inspections the house is still found to be corrupt, the entire thing is dismantled and destroyed. And Jesus, in inspecting and in cleansing His Father's house once and then twice, He is showing that He is the priest over God's house and that the old house is thoroughly corrupted and that God is going to destroy the old house and create a new house in His Son. Listen to Hebrews 3, 5, and 6. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son and we are His house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This is why, I'm, hope, I'm trying to piece, piece the pieces together for you. This is why in all of the synoptic Gospels, right after the second temple cleansing, Jesus goes right into the Olivet Discourse, which explains in graphic detail how not a single stone of that earthly temple will be left upon another and salvation is going to the Gentiles. This new house is going to be made up of the true sons of Abraham. Made up of Jew and Gentile who like Abraham believe in Christ. The priests of the old covenant here have gone apostate and Christ is taking His place as the true priest of God's people who is faithful over God's house. And here in John 2, he's giving Israel a gracious warning. He's giving them an initial inspection and cleansing to see if the condition can be remedied. But alas, we know how it ends. And let me say this at this point. This is a word to the unrepentant sinner. Christ is patient. Patient beyond our patience. But His patience does come to an end. Jesus didn't even have to give this first inspection because it says He knew what was in man. He knew they wouldn't repent and change. And yet, He issues the warning to sinners to change, to turn around, and to come to Christ and flee from the wrath of God and be saved. And sinner, if you're here and you're outside of Christ, this is Christ's gracious warning to you that already the axe has been laid at the foot of the tree, but the axe has not yet fallen. And so flee to Christ. Run to Christ for mercy. That brings us to our second point of doctrine. Second point of doctrine, Christ is God's final temple. Christ is God's final temple. Let me say this at the beginning of this this doctrinal point. 
Sometimes I think we think backwards about typology, okay? Um, If you're not familiar with what typology is, it simply means this, that there are many things written, particularly in the Old Testament, that we call types. And these are shadows that picture something that is to come that is like the picture but is better than the picture, right? So this one's called the type, and the technical language is this one's called the anti-type, if you just in case you're reading some books and they use that language. Now you've got it. Sometimes we think backwards, I think, in terms of our typology. And what I mean by that is we read things like in our text that Jesus' body is the temple and we think like this, oh, Christ is like the temple in some ways. When really how we should think is the temple was like Christ in a merely typological way. Right? In other words, it's not like the temple is the real deal and Christ just now kind of mirrors it in some ways, but rather the temple was but a shadow of the substance that has now come in Christ. Now, the significance of Christ's body being the temple means that in Christ terminate various biblical themes. And I want to just mention four this morning. So this is four sub-points under this, this doctrinal point. And I'm basically taking these from Matthew Henry and just elaborating on them in case you want to know. First of all, I'll mention four. First of all, the tabernacle and the temple being designed and built precisely according to divine revelation pointed forward to the body of Christ prepared by the Father as the perfect temple. Okay, so Hebrews 10 verse 5 says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Have you ever read Exodus and just wondered why so much detail on the design and the construction of the tabernacle? I mean, it's very laborious in its detail. It's because it was teaching us that God will be approached only on His terms and those terms are that it will only be through the incarnate Son of God whose human nature was prepared by the Father to be the perfect temple and place of communion with God. Now secondly, second theme that culminates in Christ regarding the temple, and this probably goes out without saying, Like the Old Testament temple, but in infinitely greater measure, Christ's body was and is a holy place. Okay? Not just sinless, like the stones of the temple were sinless, but Christ is the holy of holies by virtue of the divine person his human nature is united to. This is the eternal logos, eternal word in the flesh. Which is why for evil men to destroy that temple is infinitely more heinous than it is for them simply to destroy an earthly building. Third thing, like the Old Testament temple, but in greater measure, Christ's body is where the glory of God uniquely dwells. We sing, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. You remember the Ark of the Covenant, 1 Samuel 4, when the Ark of the Covenant is taken away and stolen by the Philistines and they capture the Ark. What does Israel say? They say the glory has departed from Israel. Or 2 Chronicles 7, 
after Solomon has built the temple and he's dedicated it in prayer, it says the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So much so that the priests couldn't go in. Such was it filled with the glory of God. In the incarnate Christ, we behold, as John said in chapter 1, the glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father. Colossians 2.9, in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is truly, without hyperbole, Emmanuel, God with us. And as such, Jesus Christ is the clearest and fullest revelation of the glory of God the saints will ever behold. Because if you have seen Him, you have seen the Father. Because the Son has come to explain the Father. Matthew Henry says, in Him is the habitation of God's glory. Because there the eternal Word dwelt the true Shekinah. And finally, fourthly, Like the Old Covenant, but in a superior way, it is in Christ that we worship God. Think about it. Where did the Old Covenant saints go to worship God? They went to the temple. And yet Christ, in two chapters, chapter 4, will tell the woman at the well, the hour is coming and now is, when neither on this mountain, that is Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem will people worship the Father, but they will worship in spirit and in truth. Christian worship is by the Spirit through the Son who is our temple to the Father. Hebrews 10 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He has opened for us through the curtain... That is His flesh. Matthew Henry says, just like Old Covenant worshipers look toward that house, speaking of the temple, so we must worship God with an eye to Christ. Brothers and sisters, I trust you understand this. A physical building made of stones and with animal sacrifices, could never accomplish redemption and reconciliation, true reconciliation, between a holy God and sinful man. Stones don't bring us to God. Stones don't make us favorable, uh, uh, God favorable towards us. A sinner, even if he's found in a holy place, is still a sinner. But Jesus Himself in His person and work is that holy place which actually makes us holy. Because that temple, the temple of His body, contains the sacrifice that takes away the sin of the world. And at this altar, in this temple, like Isaiah saw, there is a sacrifice, an eternal sacrifice that can make the foulest sinner clean. By His flesh, His body, His temple being destroyed at the hands of wicked men and being crushed by the wrath of His Father being poured out upon Him for our sins and His being raised again on the third day. By that and that alone are sinners brought into eternal life and peace with God. And the curtain which Hebrews says was His flesh has torn open the way for us into the Holy of Holies. 
That brings us to the third point of doctrine. We learn how much God hates those who, per- who pervert His worship for worldly gain. We learn how much God hates those who pervert His worship for worldly gain. And brothers and sisters, what a word of warning for our generation. Those who misuse the Word of God for money or manipulate their hearers under the pretense of Christian worship in order to line their own pockets are guilty of making the church of God a house of merchandise. And it is rampant in our day. And I'm thinking of several groups of people. The most obvious is prosperity preachers who preach the prosperity gospel. But more than them... I'm thinking of preachers who preach emotionally manipulative messages in order to inflate the offerings. And preachers who lay guilt on their people for not giving enough in order to line their own pockets. All of that, and there are several other ways that we could talk about, all of those are a disgrace. When the point of preaching and worship is not to have your people meet with God and know God truly, but rather to line your own pockets, you are ripe to be driven out by the risen Christ who is still consumed with zeal for the church of God. My brothers and sisters, it is not a coincidence that the apostles often warn about pastors and leaders who do what they do for a, out of a love for money. And men who do what they do for love of filthy lucre. There is nothing as ancient as capitalizing and preying on people for personal gain by using religion to do it. And God abhors it. To the point of God in the flesh making a whip to drive it out of the temple. And He will not hold them guiltless. Brothers and sisters, let me say this. I'm not going to say anything about this in our application, so I'll just say it here. If ever from this pulpit you get the sense of manipulation for personal gain or guilt tripping or always talking about money, even when it's nowhere to be found in the text, don't let it go unaddressed. Because if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it probably is a duck and needs to be addressed. That brings us to our third point, application. As we close an application, I simply want to speak first of all to the unbeliever and secondly to the believer. Unbeliever, if you're here and you're outside of Christ, I plead with you, turn to Christ before it is too late. God's dealings with Israel, as we see here even in this passage, His dealings with Israel as a nation show us both the kindness and the severity of God. It shows us the kindness of God in that He dealt so patiently with Israel, sending them prophet after prophet and renewing again and again His covenant mercies with a stiff-necked people and finally even sending His own Son to the Jews first. And yet we also see the, the severity of God in that after they have filled up the measure of their sins and have rejected their own Messiah, He leaves their house desolate. My friend, God is graciously giving you time and opportunity to repent and to be reconciled to God by faith in Christ. Right now, 
If you are outside of Christ, you are exposed to the wrath of Almighty God and you have nothing to defend yourself against it. You have no temple of safety in which to cover yourself. And right now, Christ, as the only mediator between God and man, He stands ready, according to His very Word, to extend to you grace upon grace for your sins. And He graciously warns you through His Word that your time is limited so that you would act wisely and act according to the welfare, for the welfare of your never-dying soul. You don't know if you will ever have the blessed opportunity again to hear of the good tidings of Christ. Because what is your life? Your life is like a vapor here today and gone tomorrow. How often are sinners cut off in the midst of their pursuits that I'll turn to the Lord when I'm a bit older and they're cut off before the time comes. And if you, my friend, do not trust in Christ, if you die in your sins, you will find yourself in a Christless eternity where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth and where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. And you will know on that day with unimaginable regret if you find yourself in hell, you will know with unimaginable regret that this was not a joke. And those Christians were not fools after all. And instead of believing them, I chose to play fast and loose with God to my own eternal peril. Sinner, come to Christ while there is time. Come to Christ where there is safety. Find shelter under the wings of His grace that shields you from the wrath of God and brings the sinner peace with God. Lastly, I want to speak by way of application to the believer. Christian, this application is a broad one, but it's been, I think, a while since I've been this broad in our application, and it's one that we need to be asked and reminded of often. Christian, in response to this text, make your highest pursuit in life, your life's resolution, make it to grow in your acquaintance with Christ. Make it to grow in your acquaintance with Christ, for Christ Himself is our life. We need the church, we need pastors, but Christ is the life of the believer. And when I say grow, in your acquaintance with Christ, I don't just mean learn about Him in a cerebral, intellectual sense merely. People who are not even Christians can read theological books. But rather, study Christ the way you would study your spouse. Wash yourself in His perfections through the Word. And apply the truth of Christ to your own heart as you commune with Him and have fellowship with Him. You have ample things to furnish your heart and your mind with in terms of His glories and what He is to His church. He is our temple. He's our priest, our prophet, our king, our brother, our friend, our righteousness, our sanctification. Everything that the believer hungers and thirsts for is stored up only in Christ. 
And His Spirit that He has caused to dwell within us is that fountain of living water which overflows and constantly quenches our thirst by bringing Christ near to our heart. Christian, this is the question. Honestly, with Judgment Day honesty, how is your walk in communion with Christ going? Is it stagnant? Perhaps you've grown cold in your hearts towards the things of Christ. And His person and His work don't warm your heart the way they used to. Perhaps you're like the church at Ephesus in in Revelation chapter 2 that Jesus says, this I have against you, you have lost your first love. Jesus says to that church in Revelation 2, remember from where you have fallen. And you know what He says in grace? Repent and do the works you did at first. Return to Christ in your heart, the lover of your soul. He is a most gracious Savior and long-suffering and patient Savior as the saints through the centuries have proved again and again. And brothers and sisters, as we come to the Lord's table, let me say this. As we come to the table, come with an expectant heart to meet with Christ. Come expectantly. Not doubting, but believing upon Christ to do what only He can do and what He has promised to do for His church. To fan into flame the renewal of our love for Christ and our knowledge of His love for us. Come expectantly, expecting Christ to cause our hearts to rejoice afresh and our mouths to overflow again with thanksgiving and our lives to respond in glad obedience to Him. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that You would write Your Word upon our hearts. Father, we pray that we would sanctify the Lord Jesus Christ as holy in our hearts. As we think upon Him as our temple, the Holy One, who by His flesh has opened wide Your mercy and gained entrance for us into the Holy of Holies. Lord, we pray as we come to the table that we would come with reverential joy. That we would come with reverence and respect that this is a holy ordinance. But Lord, that we would, that we would come rejoicing. That we would abound in thanksgiving. That we would believe the Gospel as it is revealed to us even visibly at the Lord's table. We pray, Father, that we would be reminded that our redemption and salvation does not rest upon anything we have done, but is found outside of us in Christ. That our righteousness is the righteousness given from another. And our holiness is a holiness given to us by another. And that our one day glorification will be given to us because Christ has been glorified. Father, cause us to not boast in anything except for that which Christ has done for our souls. Keep us from boasting of gifting, of supposed wisdom, and cause us to boast only in the Lord that His wounds have paid our ransom. Draw near to us now, Father, we pray. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.